There was a Princeton psychologist who sat who decided that he wanted to study the link between facial features and character. He wanted to know why we are so confident in our ability to size someone up after only seeing them for just a hundredth of a millisecond. His name was Alex Todorov, and he said, I had done studies with my students that found that there was a direct correlation between how competent a campaigning politician's face was and how great his margin of victory turned out in the final election. We might assume that our judgments are founded on deliberate and rational thought processes, but observers had made their judgments about politicians based on a one-second look at his face. You see, we are very quick at sizing people up, and perhaps this is good. We can judge right away if somebody is a danger or somebody is good, but we are very confident in our snap judgments and our ability to size up the character of someone else. But unfortunately, we're not always right, are we? Sometimes our our first impression of somebody turns out to be wildly off base. And they don't have the character that we initially thought they did by their appearance. One of the good examples in our culture today is celebrities, right? We invest them with a lot of authority and power, and we look up to them, but many of them are morally bankrupt. Their lives are wreckage from one marriage to another, from drug addictions and sex addictions, and yet we, they're beautiful. And so we look at their appearance and we think highly of them when their character would suggest otherwise. Just as a side note, Plato, in his ideal republic, said that actors should not be citizens. He forbade that. Now, you can draw whatever conclusion you like from that, but it might have been wise. (laughs) We invest authority in people who are attractive but otherwise unfit for leadership, like Saul. Remember, Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. He stands ahead and shoulders over everyone else in Israel. And Samuel thought, that's the guy. That's the one who will lead Israel. But he proved over and over again not to have the character to be able to be king. He refused the authority structure that God had put in place, listening to the voice of God over and over again until finally we saw last week that God rejected him as king. Israel wanted a king like the nations, and God gave them one. He allowed them to have what they wanted. Sometimes God does that so that he can teach us a deeper lesson. A lesson that sometimes is hard for us to learn. Hard for us to understand. Because God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Moses warned in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us. And what God is revealing slowly throughout as this story has unfolded from Genesis. Now we are at this stage in Israel's history of 1 Samuel. And God has instituted the kingship, which he had planned all along as we looked at Deuteronomy. We saw that. 
But what God is revealing slowly is that he uses those who are least and last. Those who we least likely think God would use. Those are the ones he chooses. The least and the last. He picks Abram. Nobody. Pagan from Ur. And he calls him. He chooses Jacob over the firstborn Esau, who is also Isaac's favorite. Similarly with Jacob, the Messiah doesn't come from Judah or from Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, but he comes from Judah, not even the firstborn. He uses Gideon, that cowering, faithless weakling to deliver Israel from the Midianites. The point God is making over and over and over again is the point that Paul made in our scripture lesson. Let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. The point God is making is that He will get the glory. As Jonathan said, by few or by many. God is the one who will get glory. And He usually works through the least and last. So as we come to our text this morning, 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, knowing that God has rejected Saul as king, the question is, how does God choose the next king of Israel? So let's read this text this morning together. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, And say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we do give you thanks for this portion of your word. 
We ask, Father, that you would open it to us so that we may behold wonders out of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Samuel is still grieving over Saul. And it's really hard to tell exactly why Samuel is grieving. Is it because he's personally offended that the one that he chose turned out to be a flop? Or is it because he's invested so much in him, as a mentor does, just to watch someone you've discipled, someone you've loved, you've cared for, you've poured out your heart to, only to watch them turn away from the Lord and and fall away. You grieve over that, right? You want that person to be walking with the Lord, and Saul is not. But the Lord, he rebukes Samuel. Why do you continue to grieve over Saul? And this this seems to suggest that Samuel is taking this personally. His choice for king was rejected. He was rejected, it might feel like. But God says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I have someone chosen. I already have a king that I have plans for, great plans for. And he says, he uses this particular word that becomes thematic for the rest of this chapter. Provided. I have provided a king. That word provided in the Hebrew is see to. I have seen to it. We use that expression in in English, right? Someone sees to something, they provide for it. But the, the word seeing and looking is important in this chapter. It's mentioned in verse 1, in verse 6 and 7, and also in verse 12. The theme of looking, not with the eyes, not as man looks on the appearance, but as God does, looking at the heart. Well, Samuel is naturally fearful, right? He's, He's just told the king of Israel, who is, by all intents, the most powerful man in the land, He commands the army. He's the one who is God's minister to execute justice. And when he says, off with your head, men come and they take your head off. So Samuel is rightly afraid of Saul. Now, he uh, expresses this to the Lord and the Lord says, don't worry. You're going to go under the guise of a sacrifice. Bring a heifer with you. And then you will come to the elders of Bethlehem. Now, they come out to them, and they're afraid too. Now, imagine, the prophet is not the kind of guy that you want to be best friends with. He's got God's ear. He's the one that's constantly hearing from God and speaking the word from God. Now, that can be good, but it can also be very bad, right? It can be a word of judgment. So the elders... They all come out trembling. What word do you have? Do you come peacefully? We want to know before we let you into our town that we're not going to hear judgment upon us. And so they're rightfully concerned. They're rightfully fearful. But Samuel reassures them, I've come peacefully. I've come to make a sacrifice. Consecrate yourself. And then he goes and he consecrates the house of Jesse. Now, this is important because it implies that Jesse is not a part of the elders of this city, which means that Jesse is not important. 
right? He's not one of those families that's successful, that's father is an elder and rules in the gates, right? He's insignificant, probably not as wealthy and not as highly favored as the rest of the elders. And so Samuel goes separately to consecrate him. And this is going with the theme that God is using the least, the most insignificant, the smallest to accomplish his purposes. And before even knowing that Eliab is Jesse's son, Samuel says, that's the guy. What's he doing? Right? He, he, when, he, when they came, look at verse 6. It says, when they came, that is the house of Jesse, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And notice, he looked, he saw, he's seeing He's judging by appearance. He's doing exactly what he did with Saul. Saul was tall and handsome. He looked the part. Eliab, he's handsome. He looks like he could be. Surely that's the king. In the very center, the very heart of this text is in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, and listen to the words that he says. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. What does that language remind you of? That's the very same language he used of Saul. Just last chapter, he was tall and handsome. He, he checked all the boxes as far as appearance goes, but he has been rejected by God. And so God is subtly rebuking Samuel for continuing to do the same thing falling into the same sin that he had before of judging by the appearance. And he continues, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So there's a a subtle rebuke. And how how often do we need this? For how, how often do we return to the same sins as Peter warns us, like a dog that returns to its vomit? Like a pig when once washed goes to wallow in the mud, so too do we constantly return to the same besetting sins. So too do we need to be reminded constantly to flee them and to repent. But what do we see in this passage? We don't see God's harsh condemnation for Samuel, but we see his slowness to anger. We see his patience. He's working with Samuel just like he's working with all of Israel to show them. It's not based upon what you see. It's based upon what I say. And he wants them to learn this lesson over and over again. I don't use people who you most likely think I will. I use the least and the last. There is a reminder there that we need to Thank God for his patience and his slowness to anger as he continually, not just Eliab, but he brings all seven of Jesse's sons before him. And in each time he's reminded again and again, my standards are not your standards. My ways are not your ways. I work through the least and the last with those voted least likely to succeed. As I said earlier, we are hardwired to make snap judgments on appearance. And partly that's good, right? To keep us from danger. 
But often enough, this gets us into big trouble. James, we looked at last summer, James chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a golden ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is is driving us to see that the distinctions, the artificial distinctions that we make, here he's using the example of rich and poor, but we do it with so many other things. So many distinctions that we place and we, we put people in a hierarchy, a grid, worthwhile, worthy, not worthy. And we say, you sit here in the place of honor and we tell the other person to go sit down there. It's not just money. We do this with race. I know that race has become one of those topics that's difficult to talk about. Right? I reject critical race theory and anti-racism. I think that is garbage. But there is real racism in the world. People do judge by the skin color. And they mistreat other people. Somebody who's made in the image of God, they treat them less than human. This does happen. We ought to be on guard that we don't cherish those kinds of thoughts in our own hearts. Maybe we don't do it on the base of race, but maybe it's those guys from Dunmore or Troop, you know, or, you know, I'm from Old Forge, and we just don't associate with those folks that are up the line. I don't know. Maybe that's true. But you have to be careful that we don't put artificial distinctions and judge by appearance. We need to reject that kind of thinking. God speaks into the mess and says, no, stop looking at people based on appearances, based on what you see. Start looking at people the way I see them. Start looking at the heart. Instead, instead we begin to view people, instead we need to begin to view people as God does. And men, I want to take a moment and speak to you because we have such a tendency as men to turn women into objects for our own lust. They are not objects. They are fellow image bearers. We need to pray that God would give us the eyes of Christ. Christ never looked at a woman and lusted after her. He never undressed her with his eyes. He never turned her into an object for his own desires. He saw her completely and valued her. Why do you think there were so many women following him? Because they'd never experienced another man looking at them in that way. 
Many of them were prostitutes who were used to men treating them like a piece of meat, objectifying them. They were used to that. And then Jesus comes and he looks at them and he doesn't look at them as something that he can get, something that he could take. He looks at them pure. And you need to be praying, men, that God would give you those kinds of eyes, that you would see women as sisters in Christ, as image bearers. And then you need to get radical with killing sin. Jesus, he, his prescription is pretty intense. Cut, pluck your eye out if it causes you to offend. Cut your hand off. It's better to enter heaven maimed than to continue in that kind of sin. Men, get radical with your sin. Kill it or it will kill you. We are prone to lust. We are prone to turning by looking at women based upon appearances and not seeing their hearts. And ladies, don't believe the culture's lies that it's about appearances. It's not all about appearances. True beauty, as Peter warns, is, is not an outer adornment, but the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And as Proverbs 31.30 warns, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Your devotion, your identity, which is grounded in Christ and not your appearance, is what will enable you to stand against our culture's lies, which are constantly reducing you to your body parts. Don't believe those lies. Your worth is found not in your appearance, but in Christ. Your worth is found in Him. You see, we are prone to judge by appearances. And it's dangerous. And it leads to sin if we're not careful. If we're not on guard. It leads to making these kinds of judgments like Samuel does. And we invest with authority people who have no character. And we don't spend the time that we do in the gym or in our makeup or in our clothing that we do working on our character. We don't dress in Christ, but we worry too much about the outward adornment. Now, there's some, there's some level of frustration here, right? As all of the sons are paraded in front of Samuel, the question there is, where is Yahweh's chosen king? When will we meet him then? And as each of Jesse's sons is rejected, Samuel says to Jesse in verse 11, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest. And in the Hebrew, the word for the youngest is the smallest. There remains the smallest in my family. He is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. That is, he is going to be, that is the very least in your family, the smallest, the one who's out keeping the sheep, he is going to be the greatest. He's going to have the seat of honor. None of us will sit down to this sacrifice until he comes. 
And two things should jump right out to us as we read this. The youngest, we know that theme. We've already seen that theme develop all through the pages of Scripture. As God chooses the youngest, the least, over and over again, which we've already outlined. But also that he's a shepherd. Now kings at this time in the ancient Near East styled themselves as shepherds. Shepherding their people. This is a common trope that is well used. So that this is the youngest and that he is a shepherd should have flashing neon lights. This is the one. This is the king that God has chosen. Not by appearance, but because God has chosen him. And as Paul said in the text that we read from 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Where's your boast? It should be in the Lord, not in appearances. But David is described as being handsome. He's described as being ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and handsome. The word for handsome is, again, that word for seeing. He's good to see. He's good to look upon. He's handsome. He has a good appearance. So it's not that God is just calling ugly people and the youngest in the family. That's not the point I'm trying to drive home, right? Okay, I aspire to be ugly, and it's too late, my birth order, I can't fix that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ways that we judge are often not apparent by our senses, right? We usually get it wrong. See, David is ruddy, which means that he's red. He's a redneck, Right? He's out in the he's working out in the fields. He got red from being in the sun. He's used to hard labor. He's used to being out in the elements. He is a man that's already being trained for leadership. And Samuel is told, This is the one. This is the one. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel takes the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You see, oil is symbolic for the Spirit. When Aaron is um, anointed with oil, it's a symbol of the being filled with the Spirit. Now, it's not regeneration. This is not what the New Testament talks about, the new birth, right, or conversion. That's not what's happening here. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the Spirit coming upon someone, it talks about it in terms of fulfilling an office, a function, right? David is being filled with the Spirit so that he can exercise the rule and reign of God as king under the great king, Yahweh. He will be a vice regent, ruling and reigning, listening to God, as Saul didn't, and obeying God's voice. So he is filled with the Spirit to accomplish that purpose. David is now the Lord's anointed, the Mashiach. He is Messiah. 
He's the one that is anointed by God that was already talked about in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. When Hannah, Samuel's mother, sang of this future king, she sang, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so David becomes the Lord's anointed. He becomes the Christ, right? He is the one that God has set apart to save his people. Now, interestingly, if we fast forward all the way to John's revelation, Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus says this of himself. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He says, I am David's source. I'm the root of David, but I'm also great David's greater son. I'm his descendant. I am the Christ for which David was just a picture of. He was just a foretaste of. He was just a type of of what I came to do, which is ultimately deliver my people from sin and death. And so Jesus, so David is a type of Jesus. And just like David, we see that Jesus wasn't welcome in his own hometown. He was the least, a carpenter. And they said, is it, why are we listening to this guy? He's just Mary and Joseph's son. We've, we saw him when he was a kid. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Others rejected him because he hung around the wrong people, tax collectors and prostitutes. They said, this guy can't be the Messiah. He's with the wrong crowd. Matthew chapter 11, verse 18. And others didn't think that he could be royalty because he came from Nazareth. Nazareth means the sticks. He's, he came from the sticks. I don't know where the sticks is in reference here. It's like maybe Factoryville or something. Where's the sticks around here? I don't know. But he's from way out of town. He's not from Jerusalem. He can't be royalty. It's impossible. And so ultimately, the people that Jesus came to save rejected him. One after another, they rejected him. The people, the very people he came to be king over, rejected his kingship. And of course, we should have expected this for Isaiah told us that his appearance would be unremarkable. In Isaiah 53, 2, Isaiah predicted about this servant. He said, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus was the least and the last. Nobody expected the Messiah to be Jesus of Nazareth. And just like Jesus, David being filled with the Spirit, it doesn't signal times of peace and prosperity. What's going to happen with David? He's going to be driven out into the wilderness. He is going to be by the Spirit made into a giant killing, 
demon-whispering warrior poet who will be hunted like a dog, persecuted by his own son, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. David is a picture of Jesus. And great David's greater son, when he is filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit descends on him like a dove, what happens? He's driven out into the wilderness. And he does battle against, the, against Satan, facing down his temptations. Just like David. Now one thing I want to emphasize, and I will over and over again, you're not David. I'm not David, right? Um, when it comes to making application, when thinking about the life of David, we have to recognize God is using David in a particular office that we are not called to. I am not a type of Christ. I never will be. But something really interesting happens in the New Testament. And I want to press this so you see that you are not David, but you are in David's greater son. You are in Christ by faith. Paul in 2 Corinthians six eighteen he makes this stunning connection when he makes an allusion to the covenant that God will make with David in 2 Samuel 7, but he changes it. And it's really stunning, so I want you to see it. In 2 Samuel 7, God singles David and his house out, and he says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you a house that's going to endure forever. And there's never going to lack a son to sit on your throne, on the throne of David. That was his covenant with David. And he says in in verse 14, I will be to him, that is that son that he causes to stay on his throne, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But listen to what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 6.18. He says, take, quoting this, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And the first thing Paul does is make this promise, the promise to David, plural, sons. But not just sons, he extends it to daughters. The entire community of those who are united to Christ by faith partake in great David's greater son. And like him, who now rules and reigns, we too are kings and queens, called to proclaim to the nations Jesus is king. While Jesus is uniquely the son of David, we share in his calling to crush the head of that serpent, Satan. Who Paul in Romans 16 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is the church. Because we are a part of that community those sons and daughters who are kings and queens, who are ruling and reigning with Christ as our king. So how does God call the next king of Israel? Not by using human standards, but by looking at the heart. And it will take us the rest of the David saga, which stretches from this chapter until the end of Second Samuel, to flesh out what the Lord sees when he looks at David's heart. But what we can say is that God's choice is often not the most obvious. God loves the underdog stories. 
He loves the stories that defy men's expectations. He loves to use the last and least to accomplish his purpose. What matters is not that you are seen by men, but that you are seen by God. What matters is not that you are seen by men, but that you are seen by God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the way that you have orchestrated history, for the way that you work. Your ways are inscrutable. They're past finding out. You have revealed yourself to us, and most often we see that you work through the least and the last. And you worked lastly through the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he looked least, was the very King of glory, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Though he took on human flesh and for a time was humiliated, now he sits in glory, ruling and reigning until all of his enemies are put under his footstool. Hasten the day, Lord. May it come quickly when the last enemy is put under Christ's feet, death. And then the kingdom is handed over to you and we will rule and reign in your presence forever. We long for that day. And as we do, we pray that you would conform us to Christ so that we may not judge by appearances, but that we would learn to have Christ's eyes, to see as he sees, to think your thoughts after you, so that we may not be sucked into uh, judging by appearance, but look at the heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.